Hello, my name is Michael, and I obsess. I come across something that grabs me and I consume until I can't take anymore, and then I'm on to the next. Some obsessions last a week, others a lifetime. It is my intention to explore these obsessions with you as they occur while the passion is hot. Welcome to Eclectic Obsessions. It is the late 80s and I am sick in bed. I flip through the channels, vainly trying to find something to take my mind off the fever and chills. Suddenly, I come across an unassuming man seated at a desk, speaking in a calm and measured tone. It was a welcome relief from the screaming cable fare, and I was captivated. I had discovered Spalding Gray. Spalding Gray was an American actor and writer. He is best known for the autobiographical monologues that he wrote and performed for the theater in the 1980s and 90s, as well as for his film adaptations of these works beginning in 1987. We will be exploring his life, monologues, books, and films on this episode of Eclectic Obsessions. Spalding Rockwell Gray was born in Providence, Rhode Island, to Margaret Elizabeth and Rockwell Gray Sr. He was the middle-born of three sons. His brothers were Rockwell Jr. and Channing. They were raised in the Christian science faith of their mother. Gray and his brothers grew up in Barrington, Rhode Island, spending summers at their grandmother's house in Newport. Rockwell became a literature professor at Washington University in St. Louis and Channing a journalist in Rhode Island. After graduating from Freiburg Academy in Freiburg, Maine, Gray enrolled at Emerson College in Boston, Massachusetts as a poetry major. He earned a Bachelor of Arts in 1963. In 1965, Gray moved to San Francisco, California, where he became a speaker and teacher of poetry at the Esalen Institute. In 1967, while Gray was vacationing in Mexico City, his mother committed suicide at age 52. After his mother's death, Gray returned to the East Coast and settled permanently in New York City. Gray began his theater career in New York in the late 1960s. In 1970, he joined Richard Schechner's experimental troupe, The Performance Group. With actors from The Performance Group, including Willem Dafoe and Elizabeth LeCompte, Gray helped to co-found the theater company, The Wooster Group. He worked with them from 1975 to 1980 before leaving the company to focus on his own work. I came upon this method of storytelling through my work in theater. I was working with the Worcester Group in New York City, and we began to use my memories and life experiences as a kind of source material to build our pieces on. Um, In Rumstick Road, which dealt with my mother's suicide, I remember just coming forward and speaking directly in a direct address way to the audience about my experiences of growing up in Barrington, Rhode Island. And uh, something clicked about that that form of direct presentation. And I've been working with that method ever since. Gray first achieved prominence in the United States with the film version of his monologue Swimming to Cambodia. 
He had performed this monologue in New York City and published it as a book in 1985. He adapted it as a film in 1987, directed by Jonathan Demme. This work was based on his experience in Thailand during the filming of a small role in the movie *The Killing Fields* about the war in Cambodia. And when we shot the films, we, I was had an audience like here. We have an audience, and I was always looking past the camera because I really relate to an audience, live audience. More so, Jonathan Demme, when he's directing me, said, "Be generous to the camera." Where is it? Where are we? This one. Here, that's it. Be generous to the camera, right? So I had to start talking to a machine, which I didn't like. You know, I mean, because what, what does it give back? It gives back your reflection, if, if nothing else. You know? Right. But here, the live audience is wonderful. In 1987, Gray traveled to Nicaragua with the Office of the Americas. He wrote an unproduced screenplay based on this experience. Some of his experiences there were documented in his monologue "Monster in a Box." Gray received a Guggenheim Fellowship and the National Book Award in 1985 for this work. He continued to write and perform monologues until his death. Through 1993, these works often incorporated his relationship to his girlfriend Renée Shafransky. They married, and she became his collaborator. He later married Kathleen Russo. Gray's success with his monologues brought him various supporting movie roles. He also played the lead role of the stage manager in a high-profile 1988 revival of Thornton Wilder's play *Our Town* by the Lincoln Center Theater. In 1992, Gray published his only novel, *Impossible Vacation*. The novel reflects elements of Gray's life, including his upbringing as a Christian scientist, his white Anglo-Saxon Protestant background, and his mother's suicide. Gray wrote a subsequent monologue related to his experiences in writing and promoting this book, entitled "Monster in a Box." During an interview in 1997 with film critic Edward Vilga, Gray was asked whether the movie industry was confused by his writings and roles. He responded, "I would say that my major problem with Hollywood is this: I sometimes paraphrase Bob Dylan." Bob Dylan says, "I may look like Robert Ford, but I feel just like Jesse James." I say, "I may look like a gynecologist, an American ambassador's aide, or a lawyer, but I feel like Woody Allen. My insides are not what my outsides are. I'm not who I appear to be. I appear to be a wasp Brahmin, but I'm really a sort of neurotic, perverse New York Jew." Well, I feel like I'm smothering. If I don't, again, if I don't talk and if I don't communicate, it's an it's an organic thing that I love doing more than anything else. Sitting in front of an audience and telling well-shaped stories, and also it gives me a sense of history. And my life is very fragmented without it. I live in New York City. I, it confirms my being. I am here because I am telling you a story about being here. When、yeah. I'm not telling a story about being here, I begin to disappear psych- psych- psychically. If you know that experience, I, I begin to go. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. You know, I, 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 am very, I have a very tenuous existence. You reaffirm、uh, your existence、yeah. by doing this. Yeah, yeah. And also, <laughs> I make, I help people to laugh, or laugh at me. And I am sac- I'm a sacrificial. I'm a fool. I'm a fool for the middle class, the upper middle class. You're sacrificing yourself I, so I, they can I, laugh through I, I you at themselves. I think so.、Themselves. I think so because I think a, a lot of my life is、uh, filled with sadness and pain that I am able to convert into humor. But while I'm experiencing the thing, I, I, I feel more lost in it. Gray's performance style relied upon an impressionistic use of memories rather than a recounting of chronological facts. Gray referred to his style of monologue as resulting from a sort of poetic journalism. 
In June 2001, Grace suffered severe injuries in a car crash while on vacation in Ireland. In the crash, Grace suffered a broken hip, which left his right leg almost immobilized and a fracture in his skull. During surgery on his skull, a titanium plate was placed over the break after surgeons removed dozens of bone fragments from his frontal cortex. A jagged scar on his forehead was a reminder of the injury. He struggled to recover from his injuries and a severe depression that set in sometime after the accident. He had already struggled intermittently with depression in his life. Suffering both from physical impairment and ongoing depression, Grace struggled for months and was treated with a variety of different therapies. Grace sought treatment from neurologist Oliver Sachs, who began seeing Gray in August 2003 and continued to do so almost until the time of Gray's death. Sachs later said Gray perceived the taking of his own life as part of what he had to say, with the monologist having talked about what he called a creative suicide. On one occasion when he was being interviewed, he thought that the interview might be culminated with a dramatic and creative suicide. I was at pains to say that he would be much more creative alive than dead. On January 11, 2004, Gray was declared missing. The night before his disappearance, he had taken his children to see Tim Burton's film Big Fish. It ends with the line, A man tells a story over and over so many times he becomes the story. In that way, he is immortal. Gray's widow, Kathy Russo, said after he disappeared, You know, Spalding cried after he saw that movie. I just think it gave him permission. I think it gave him permission to die. On March 7, 2004, the Office of Chief Medical Examiner of the City of New York reported that Gray's body was discovered by two men and pulled from the East River. Gray was reported to have been working on a new monologue at the time of his death. There was speculation that his revisiting the material of the car crash in Ireland and his subsequent attempts to recover from its injuries might have triggered a final bout of depression. Gray was buried at Oakland Cemetery in Sag Harbor, New York. He was survived by his wife, Kathy Russo, stepdaughter Marissa, sons Forrest Dylan Gray and Theo Spaulding Gray, and brothers Rockwell and Channing Gray. And so I did, I thought I was an actor, it was more social, and then I, I, I wanted to say my own words somewhere along the way. And um, I thought, well, this sounds, this is crazy. How would I do that? And I just sat down at the table and made an outline, and it was called Sex and Death to the Age 14. That was the first monologue. Sex and Death? Sex and Death to the Age 14. To the Age 14. Yeah, and it was just a recollection of everything I could remember about sex and death up until 14, which pretty, was pretty minimal. <laughs> it wasn't, it wasn't. In, was in it a short case, monologue? So. No, it, no, but you know what's interesting about it? It started out, <clears throat> you know, it was about uh, the death of pets and, and something I probably can't say on Canadian television, but uh, it started out just remembering and writing down outline, and then I spoke it, and it was 40 minutes long. And then the next night I had more memories, and so it grew in 50 and 60 an hour and 20 minutes. You see, just like in psychoanalysis, when you're doing free association, I think the memory gets activated. Sex and Death to the Age 14 Gray's inaugural monologue is a humorous and moving recollection of growing up in a Christian scientist family in Rhode Island. The retelling of personal history includes experiences of those twin pillars, sex and death, filtered through the lens of an adult who is recollecting a young teen's impressions of it all. 
And the last time I was in Provincetown was when I was with Nora, a very beautiful dancer that I had met at a college I was an artist in residence at in Connecticut. She was very, very beautiful, very fragile, very shy, but I was very attracted to her. No, I, I, normally I wouldn't have been attracted to someone like that. There was something, something about her, something about her, um, that she looked like a sister. There was something strangely incestuous about it, I think. And I decided that I, I would ask her to sleep with me, but I thought I wouldn't rush it. I'd wait till a second date. <laughs> so on the second date, I did ask her, and she said, Oh, no, I'm afraid not. And I said, Why? She said, I'm shy. I said, Well, I'm shy, too. We can work it out. And she said, No, I'm afraid not. So this caused me to get more and more obsessed with her. I couldn't imagine why she wouldn't sleep with me. And at the end of the season, at the end of July, I was so obsessed with her that I asked if I could go home with her. And she lived in Newton, and I said, could I, could I do that? Could I, could I ride home with you? I have nothing to, to do or nowhere to go. And she said, well, all right. She said, I, I, I'd like you to come along. I do like you. You've got to promise that you don't try to seduce me. And so I said, I promise. And we headed out. <laughs> and the only problem was she was smoking a lot of marijuana at the time. And I hardly ever smoked it, and she was smoking it, and I was kind of going along with her. But it, what she would do after she smoked it, I, it was she'd get in her leotard and she'd stretch out over a big, big uh, rubber uh, orange ball, a big beach ball, <laughs> and just stretch and lie there because you see, it caused a what we call maybe a polymorphous perverse reaction in her body, where the energy spread out all over her body. Whereas with me, it just got stuck in my lower chakra. It, it was kind of a, I just got horny. So it was a real problem, and by and and we started traveling around New England, um, out of her house in Newton, kind of using that as a base, and coming back. And at one point, we ended up when we were traveling, sleeping naked in the same bed together, with, and with me without touching her. It was kind of like a strange New England tantric exercise, <laughs> very New England. And uh, finally, we ended up uh, at at uh, at Walden Pond. And we went down, we went down to a far end of it. We didn't stay at the uh, public beach and we went down. It's one of those beautiful summer days, uh, dry, high white clouds, bright blue sky. I'd never seen the pond before. And we went down to the far end where it said no swimming. And we sat down. She let up a joint, passed it over to me. And she sat and started writing a, a letter to a 80 year old naturalist in Minnesota. And I was just kind of sitting there crazy. It was starting to boil up in my spine, and this energy was coming up in the base of my spine. I said, Nora, 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 I can't stand it much longer. I'm getting so horny. Let's go off into the forest. And she said, no, 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 no. Just let me draw that awful old sexual energy off you. Lie down on your stomach, and I will give you touch for health. <laughs> so I lay down on the stomach and she took one finger and put it at the base of, of, of uh, my spine and another finger at the base of my uh, skull and then she just touched she just touched me and she drew it and she drew that awful old sexual energy off and I could see it going up like a blowtorch up out of my coccyx up her fingers and into her arm which was hollow in my mind's eye alabaster cool and her arm would cool the flame by the time it reached her elbow the flame was gone and she was drawing it off and I thought for a moment of witchcraft because of Salem and I thought of Samson and Delilah and the next thing I knew I was lying there by Walton Pond like a big sapped beached whale a big blue beached whale completely sexless but it came back <laughs> it came back as it always does
The monologue starts as a processing of an event, like writing the book or killing fields when I was in that film, processing that enormous experience. And in processing it and telling stories about it, then I begin to turn it into humor, too, because that is always the thing that kind of saves a traumatic event and lifts it up, is, is the humor of it. What I'm doing is sitting behind a table for an hour and a half and telling a story that is a narrative. To, about, you know, about about my life, but it involves other people coming in. And, but it's also it, it's humorous, but it's also real and poignant. So it's more like a roller coaster, like the way life is. Life isn't funny all the time. That's why I don't like stand-up comedians, because they're not. I try to represent life more. You know, I'm not going for the laughs every second. You know. Swimming to Cambodia. Over a period of two years, Gray originally developed Swimming to Cambodia as a theater performance piece. The original running time of the performance was a total of four hours long, and it was presented over two nights. Gray received a special citation for his work at the 1985 Obie Awards. He discusses his experiences filming a small role in the film The Killing Fields. He also expounds on the recent history of Cambodia up through the rise of power of the Khmer Rouge and the Cambodian Genocide. In 1986, the monologue was filmed by Jonathan Demme for a performance film which was scored by Laurie Anderson. In February of 1983, I met this incredible British documentary filmmaker, Roland Jaffe. Very intense man. A combination of Zorro, Jesus, and Rasputin. Body of Zorro, heart of Jesus, eyes of Rasputin. And he'd been sent over by David Putnam, who was producing a film called The Killing Fields, and he'd sent over to, to cast for actors. And he was, he was seeing people, and he was burning. He was doing all the talking. I was listening for 45 minutes. He talked. He burned with his story. I listened. 45 minutes, he told me about the story of the film. It was about a New York Times reporter, Sidney Shanberg, who was covering the American secret bombing of Cambodia for the New York Times, and his sidekick, Dith Pran, a Cambodian photographer, and how they were curious to see what would happen when the Khmer Rouge marched into Phnom Penh. And how, after the American embassy was evacuated and Dithpran sent his wife and children out with the American evacuation, Sidney Shanberg and Dithpran fled to the French embassy to hide out. And the Khmer Rouge came in and said, all Cambodians out of the French embassy or everyone dies. And they sent Dithpran out to his certain death. The only one that didn't give up hope was searching with Sidney Shanberg. And he searched for years until he located Dithpran in a Thai refu re refugee camp. And now Dithpran is working for the New York Times. I said, wow, that's an incredible story, you know, it really, it's so hopeful it sounds like someone made it up. I, I'm going to tell you right now, I would do anything to be in your film. I don't even know what roles you're looking for, but I want to be really straight with you. I'm not very political. I don't know anything about secret bombing, and in fact, I've never voted before in my life. And Roland says, perfect, we're looking for the American ambassador's aid. But I can't promise you anything. I have to go out to the coast to cast out there. We have to see how the whole puzzle shapes together. I'll be back in the city in three months' time. We'll chat again then. And I went out and I thought, you know, I want this. I want to be involved in this project more than any other project I've almost been involved in. You know. But what, what, what can I do? I'm going to tell you, part of why I gave up professional acting was I got so tired of waiting for the big indifferent machine to make up its so-called mind. You know, I wanted to have some influence over my own destiny, my own life, you know. So but I wanted to be in this film. I thought, what can I do to influence? I mean, the first thing that occurred to me was prayer. 
And I thought, mm, Spalding, it's been so long, you know. <laughs> so the next thing that came to me was that old rational voice that we all know so well, you know. Well, if I get it, I get it. If I don't, I'll do something else, you know. After all, I can still see and walk. <laughs> and as my mother always said, think of the starving Koreans, right? So I was trying to think of the starving Koreans, but my pre-conscious irrational voice was not behaving so well. It set up this kind of ritualized magical thinking. I, I mean, it started innocently enough. I, I, I literally could not go out of my, my apartment until I turned my little KLH radio off on a positive word. You know. I was there all morning some days. The stock market is rising. I could go out. Or, Consider moving Marines to save a position. I could go out. Or you may go to a doctor who belongs to the AMA, but it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to the best. I could go out. And as I went out, I found that I was turning the doorknob three times. Threes became a crucial, very important magical number. I was going one, two, three, 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 one, two, and knocking on wood when I could find wood. Bump, bump, find wood, six, six, six sets of nine and six and three and nine, snapping on my way to the supermarket to buy soup. You know, six sets of nine, nine times. Every third can was fine. The first two cans of soup had botulism, you see, or cyanide. And I thought, you know, no, Spalding, you're going to end up in the insane asylum before you get the role in the film. And it was around about the time that the little king took over. I don't know if you know him, the super ego figure, not exactly my best friend. And the little king said, Spalding, if you will, something I also knew nothing about, if you can will this magical thinking to stop, this act of will will be the supremo, supremo thing that will get you the role in the film. And I don't know until the thing takes me, and I'm in it. And, and then I, I start talking about it to try to understand it in, in publicly. I'm mean, using my, my public as a way to process it. And also, I have this sense that I'm, I'm only living once. I'm pretty clear about that. And it's a way of living twice. It's the best I can do of reincarnating myself is, is, is memory. And to tell a memory, I've often said, is, is more fun than living it. I mean, I, I have to live a life to, to, to tell a life. Terrors of Pleasure. Gray chronicles the adventures he shared with his girlfriend Renee in the Catskills. These took place in and around a cabin he purchased there in upstate New York, including the apparent absence of any foundation and a furnace located in the attic. In 1987, the monologue was filmed by Thomas Schlamme for HBO. Now I'm out on the porch. I mean, that's it. I'm out there. I'm cooking on an abachi out on the porch. I'm drinking a lot out on the porch. I mean, it's like I bought this porch for $35,000, right? In the heart of the Catskills. I'm only going in to sleep in my bed, you know, at night. And I'm sleeping with a butcher knife by the bed because of the silence up there. Next day I wake up, I think... Refrigerator day, refrigerator day. So I call up Starkey Jakes, the refrigerator man. Say, hello, Starkey. Hi. Uh, this is Mr. Gray, you know, the new homeowner up on Shady Valley Road. Um, I think I've got a bit of a Freon problem here with my refrigerator. Oh, I'm up Shady Valley Road. I'll be all about it. I'll be up there by early morning. I'll go. So while I'm waiting for Starkey Jakes to come up, uh, I see these two women coming up over the hill in Dale Affair with a little ten-year-old boy between them with a string tie like this on a July death. Oh, housewarming, housewarming. I don't see any cakes or pies, but I think they're coming to warm my house. And then she goes, hello, have you heard? 
Have you heard about the great crowd? No. I mean, that's part of why I left New York. What are you talking about? She said, <laughs> and she opened her Bible, and she came a little further onto the porch, and she wanted to read to me just a few sections. And then she says, isn't it a lovely thought that we're going to live forever? And it's just around the corner. Adam and Eve didn't have children until they sinned. And until you can understand that, all your prayers will just be like putting paint on a house that's falling down. She's got my number. She's been standing out on the street watching the house fall, just choosing that message. She wants to sell me a book. Let your kingdom come. You know? Just a dollar, the cost of the printing. I'll buy anything. I mean, I haven't got a library yet. I think I'll start it with this. You know? Why not read it till Stocky Jakes comes to fix the refrigerator? So she sells it to me. I can't get past the first picture. It's great. I have a blow-up here. Of God's kingdom come. Idyllic picture. A black girl in the corner with a little purring leopard cub. Up above, mama leopard's content. Not about to leap. Sleeping on a branch. Mom and dad with a little kid. Mom with her vegetables pouring out of her basket. Dad with his fruit and hoe. Dad sober. <laughs> Happy, smiling. Down behind them, the third world people, knowing their place in the evolutionary ladder, slowly coming up the hill. <laughs> then behind them, a pond with ducks. And here, way in the corner, you can barely see it, but I'm obsessed with it. Houses with perfect foundations. And I'm like... <laughs> here. Question for discussion. What would God's kingdom mean to you if soon it brought the conditions pictured here? Foundations. While I'm obsessing on the foundations, Starkey Jakes arrived in his pickup truck. He's got his 10-year-old kid with him. It must be summer vacation. He walks in, looks around, says, Buy cheese and crow. You didn't buy this place, did you? <laughs> I, why, I helped build it. <laughs> Hope you didn't spend more than $26. <laughs> why do you know old Diefenbach? I said, no, I don't. He said, why old Diefenbach bought this whole area? He built all these houses. Why he walked up behind you up there on that hill and folded his arms and spread his legs and said, you know, there's a sucker born every minute. <laughs> I said, would you check my refrigerator? I think I have a Freon leak. He goes over, pumps it up with Freon, says, Yep, worthless. Charges me $35, grabs his kid and leaves. So now I'm, I'm, I'm still eating out on the porch. I'm cooking on my abachi, drinking a lot out on the porch. Taking it as the Alcoholics Anonymous say, one day at a time. Next day I get up and I think, chimney day, it's chimney day, it's chimney day. So I had chimney sweep, the chimney sweep, come over from Woodstock to check it out. Jiminy Sweep pulls in in his uh, pickup truck with a stovepipe hat, sticks a flashlight up my chimney and says, don't light a fire in there. Do not light a fire in there. Basically, uh, your chimney is sinking and it's taking the house with it. <laughs> you got two tons of rock down there, don't. You got little holes in there, flames will come out, set on fire, don't light a fire in there. I said, well, wait a minute now. Now I know, can I put one of those metal sleeves down through and then hitch it up to a pot belly stove so you can see a bit of... No. Don't you know? Can't put anything, can't fix anything, can't put doors in, windows in, any kind of metal sleeve or anything like that, until you fix the foundation. Don't you know? It's not the location. It's the foundation. And he leaves. And I'm thinking, this is it. This is the only thing I have to concentrate on. 
I get two locals up there. The guys say, yeah, they can fix it. For $2,400 hand-dug job, they go down four feet below the frost level, jack up the house, put in new cinder block, then put gravel against it so the gravel would drain the water, it wouldn't freeze and push the cinder block, but they couldn't guarantee it. Why? Because basically the house is built on clay. So now I see this Hill and Dale affair is one great mound of clay with my house on it, slowly moving toward the trout stream on the other side of the road. And I just said, is there no way we can have a little permanence here? Yeah, well, maybe. I mean, you'd have to have a poured concrete foundation. We don't do that sort of thing. The guy to call is Franz Klinger. So I call up Franz Klinger. He comes over at sundown, folds his arms, spreads his legs, looks at the house and says, yep, we could do it. $8,000 and you've got to lose the porch. <laughs> no, please, sir, I live on that porch. I live for that porch. Nope. Don't be telling me my job. I've been here 30 years. You got to lose the porch. So now I'm thinking, if there's a sucker born every minute, there must be a lot more around. And I'm beginning to give up the idea of karma and beginning to think of the earth as an unjust place. And I go downtown to Ricky Riccadella, the real estate agent, to see if I can sell my house. And he says, Spalding Gray, he's Spalding Gray. Is that your real name? Whoa, with a name like that, I'd be governor of the state of New York. Where'd you get a name like that? With a name like Spalding Gray, what are you doing up there in a white trash house, sinking there and I'm filled on clay? You know, I couldn't sell you, I couldn't sell that house. I live here. People come after me. You think I want, I want to keep living here. You put 10,000 to that, maybe we can talk. Next day it's Sunday, and I wake up in the morning, and all I can hear is Harry Belafonte singing, House built on a weak foundation will not last. Oh no, oh no, oh no, oh no, oh no, oh no. And I flee tearing my hair on. I don't even have a radio or a record player. I get in my van, it won't start. It's Sunday. There are no mechanics to be had. The mechanic is at Brio's eating. I call him up for 30, $35. He'll drive up two miles and cross a couple of wires. He happens to have a plumber riding shotgun with him. This old guy gets out, looks at the house and says, Did you buy this place? <laughs> yes, I did it. I admit it. Oh, no, don't take no offense. I'm just wondering if it's winterized. Yes, as a matter of fact, that's one of the things I'm proud of. It has a furnace in the attic. You are shitting me. Don't you know heat rises? You got a furnace up in the attic, you got a kind of liquid fuel problem, the liquid fuel drops over the wires like that, you got a heat of no insurance at all. Whether you have it in a total loss situation, it's a total loss situation. It's a total loss situation. <laughs> So I'm going after, after every dinner, after eating on the porch, I go for my evening walk, which has basically become like a drunken weave through the neighborhood. <laughs> and finally, I get the courage to go up and look at the Diefenbach colony up behind my house. All this time, I've been fantasizing that fox and deer are running loose up there. And I turn left and go up. It's like a survivalist colony. All these other bungalows in different states of disrepair. The foundations being dug up. Hurricane fences with barbed wire on top of them, around them. Huge plastic Humpty Dumpties reclining on the front lawn. Pink flamingos. Camouflage cheeks. I stagger back down to my place to open another beer on the Castro convertible couch. And my God, what is happening to me, I think, because I believe in karma. Not millennia of karma like the Buddhists, but earth karma. You know, what goes around comes around. You know, uh, what you reap, you sow. Every action has a reaction. What did I do to get this reaction, you know? I'm saying, wait, am I a loser? I, 
I mean, can you become a loser late in life by getting asthma at 45? I mean, I never thought of myself as a loser. I knew I didn't have the American go-for-it spirit. I first knew I didn't have the American go-for-it spirit when I was about eight years old. I was at camp up in Maine, and I, I saw this cat carrying a chipmunk in its mouth. The cat was about 15 feet away from me, and I, and I knew that cat was going to take the chipmunk under the little cabin there and kill it and eat it. And just before the cat went under the cabin, it turned with the chipmunk in its mouth, and the chipmunk and I made absolute direct human eye-to-eye contact. And the chipmunk just went, Help, you can save me if you go for it now. If you go for it, you can save me. I didn't move. Those little chipmunks' eyes still drive me to drink every day at five. I'm a collage artist, and, and, and I sit down, and in fact, I'm starting to do it now with new material, the new material being the life I've lived since this one, which has been three years, a lot of stuff. And I have these notebooks, you know, the, the, these little marble seventh grade uh, composition notebooks, school notebooks. And in that, I have kept rough diaries, I mean, very sketchy uh, of things Forrest has said or thoughts of that. And I start to look through those, and I'm reviewing that past three years of my life. And I begin to see what that structure is, what it presents to me, and how could I tie it together? How could I make the collage? I'm really cutting up the pieces of my life, cutting and pasting, juxtaposing. And I start with a pencil outline. Monster in a Box A long-form monologue by Gray detailing the trials and tribulations he encountered while writing his autobiographical novel, Impossible Vacation. He holds up the 1900-page manuscript of his, on which he has been working for four years, and the box in which he totes it around. This is the box, he says, and this is the monster in it. He recalls returning home from a Mexican vacation in 1967 when he was 26 years old to learn that his mother had committed suicide. Upon his return from Mexico, all that was left of his mother was ashes in an urn, which was kept in a box by his father's bed. In 1992, it was made into a film directed by Nick Broomfield and scored by Laurie Anderson. An extended version of the monologue was published in book form prior to the release of the film. Thanksgiving's coming, and Thanksgiving's coming, and Renee is saying, Paul, please, please, can't we go east for Thanksgiving? Can't we go to New York, please, just for Thanksgiving? We'll never recognize it out here. Please, I want to see my friend. All right, Renee. All right, please, listen. This is the last time. I'm going to put everything aside. And, and this will be the last interruption. We take uh, a cheap five-day excursion ticket to New York City, and the morning we're supposed to fly. I'm up brushing my teeth. Renee's still in bed, and I hear her cry out, say, Spall! I have a spider bite on my thigh. I say, Renee, don't yell like that. On the morning we're supposed to fly. What is it? A spider bite? What do you mean a spider bite? What would a spider be doing in bed with you in November, and why didn't it bite me? Look, oh, God, Look, put some calamine lotion on it. It should dry up. So we put some calamine lotion on the spider bite, and we fly. And we get to New York, and on Thanksgiving Day, Renee spends almost the entire day lifting her skirt, showing her friends her spider bite. <laughs> it's now turned into blue shingles that are creeping up her leg. I, I, I'm in bed with the covers over my head. I don't like the looks of it, I'm afraid. <laughs> I don't know why. The following day after Thanksgiving, we have one day before we're supposed to fly back to Los Angeles, and I have all these invitations because of swimming to Cambodia to go to new films that are screening in town. And we have an invitation to see Cher's new film, Moonstruck, at the Museum of Modern Art. And I think, well, sure, I'll, I'll give it a try. Why not? It's free. 
So I tell Renee that I will meet her there, and she arrives early, and it's cold, so she goes in the public library across the street to warm up. And I arrive, and I see her coming out of that library, and I see her face, oh, 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 oh. I see it now, her white face, that black beret. She's distressed. She's coming toward me like someone's had a heart attack, or she's read a letter of mine she shouldn't have read. <laughs> and she comes over and puts her hand on my forehead and says, Spald, have you got a fever? I said, Renee, I, no, I don't. What happened? Spit it out. What, what, what happened in the library? I went into the library, and I walked in, and there was this book there, so it was waiting for me, and it was open to color photos of all the rashes that you get when you have AIDS. And mine was there. I said, um, wait a minute. Uh, wait, uh, now, you're Renee, right? Um, I'm Spalding. Uh, why, why did we come east for, th- for Thanksgiving? Uh, why aren't we in Los Angeles? Uh, 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 denial. Um, now, wait a minute. <laughs> What library? Um, now, wait, let's go back again. I've never wanted to disappear from a place more in my life. Never. I, I mean, I, I was, my feet began to sweat. My feet began to sweat uncontrollably. I was pacing up in front and down in front of the museum, leaving sponge marks on the sidewalk. My mouth went dry. My mouth was so dry, it was like a big, big ball of cotton. I couldn't, I couldn't barely talk. And, and, and every time I tried to deny what Renee was telling me, I would begin to go... <laughs> I was barking. I was barking like a dog in front of the Museum of Mondar. I was barking and pacing, and Renee said, Paul, calm down, calm down. Let's go in and watch Moonstruck and try to forget about it for a while. My God, it's she that has the rash. She's able to lose herself in the movies. I go in, I'm not able to lose myself. I'm trying to lose myself. But every time I see Cher on the screen, I don't see Cher's face. Instead, I see a projection of that sleazy, sexy, stage door Judy with the very questionable sex and drug habits that I went home with one night after a show a long time ago. But not long enough ago. And every time I see that face, I would go... Renee said, Paul, stop it. You're barking in the Museum of Modern Art. People are staring at you. In fact, Cher is staring at you. I turn around and there Cher is. She's surrounded by an entourage of men with purple and orange hair. I think, why would she be staring at me? And we go back and I'm watching and now all I can see is that sexy Judy again and, uh, instead of Cher's face. And now I'm growling. I'm going, arr, arr. Renee says, stop it, stop it. People are staring at you. McNeil Lair is behind you taking notes. I turn around. There he is. I don't know which one, but he's there. <laughs> and what's amazing is every time that I realize I'm being looked at by a celebrity, every time I find myself in a celebrity's gaze, I'm not afraid of death or dying. I haven't been able to analyze that one yet. <laughs> and we get back to Los Angeles, and the spider bite or whatever it is, is pretty much dried up. But the whole thing, the whole event is triggered in me, this irrational, off-the-wall AIDS hysteria, in which I'm now sure I'm carrying the virus. I mean, I feel like I'm about to explode any day like a disease bomb. And let me tell you, National Public Radio was not helping that winter one bit. Every night at five, all things considered, was playing or announcing all the new risk groups. High risk was out for AIDS. Suddenly, risk was in. And you'd be amazed how many of us in this room fit into that new group. I certainly did. And so, I mean, the Christian scientist in me was saying, simply don't turn the radio on at five. Because in Christian science, to name the disease is to get it, to absolutely get it. 
where the Freudian in me was saying, turn it on, because to name it is to claim it. To name it is to take away its power. So I'm sort of going, click, Freud, off, Christian science, on, Freud, off, Christian science, on, Freud, off, Christian science. <laughs> click, uncircumcised males. Fifty percent chance. Click. <laughs> HIV positive female. Click. And I'm pacing around the table, and my feet are sweating, and my mouth is dry, and I'm, I'm barking, and I, I'm trying to write. I've opened the book. I'm there. I'm here at this place, right in the center of the book. There. And it's not something I have to make up. It's an absolute clear memory of that summer of 1966, and and I'm with my mother trying to help her through the, her nervous breakdown. And she's tearing her hair out of the back of her head and, and, and singing certain Christian science hymns out of tune and, and crying out to Jesus. And I'm, I'm trying to calm her down by reading to her from Alan Watts's book, Psychotherapy East and West. You know, <laughs> laboring under that romantic R.D. Lang idea that was so popular then about how every person who has a nervous breakdown is so lucky because they get to come out the other side of it with such great wisdom, provided uh, they come out the other side. And I was trying to help my mother through to the other side. And I remember that warm July day, she curled up on the couch in her pajamas and me there, reading to her from Alan Watts, but she wasn't listening to me. She was reading from Mary Baker Eddy's Science and Health and from the Christian Science Monitor, which she was holding between us like a Japanese paper wall. And I couldn't see her, and I got so annoyed with the paper that I just reached down and went and flicked it. And she pulled the paper down and looked me right in the eyes and said, how shall I do it, dear? How shall I do it? Shall I do it in the garage with the car? But what it does, yes, in the case of Gray's Anatomy, I'm now more distant. But at the beginning, it starts in three forms. First, I'm just telling what I remember. Then we tape record it, and Renee and I work on it and reshape it dramatically. And then the third part, it becomes a dramatic monologue with laughs and tension and, and drama built into it. And it becomes not fixed in stone because, for instance, now I'm dealing, this is a section about Nixon being in my doctor's office. Richard Nixon and me thinking he had a mask on because I, my pupils were dilated. And the night I was performing, Richard Nixon died that day and, and I had to rearrange the monologue to be more respectful, to fit it, to not make a joke of it. And I find that that's always interesting, that history keeps changing and it still reflects in the monologue. And the monologue is an open form, whereas my novel, Impossible Vacation, is closed. There's no re-entering into that. And when I play the monologue, it can always change a little bit in relationship to the place I'm in, just in minor ways, and that makes it refreshing for me. Grey's Anatomy Spalding Gray is diagnosed with a rare ocular condition called macular pucker. After doctors inform him that he will require risky surgery, he decides to first pursue alternative medicines, such as Christian science, Native American sweat lodges, and the Elvis Presley of psychic surgeons. This, in turn, takes him on a journey around the world and steers him away from surgery more so because of religious reasons, often in a dramatic and humorous fashion. In 1996, it was made into a film directed by Steven Soderbergh and scored by Cliff Martinez. Then the inevitable happened. My Chinese doctor called me in for my eye examination. I didn't want to go, really. I, I just denied that it was ever going to happen. I, I dragged myself in. I... I sit there, I don't have a book anymore, I'm just waiting for my pupils to dilate. I, I, I 
I'm, I'm munching on a sweet potato, I remember. And out of the office, out of the nurse's office, comes this man with a, with a oh, God, a drooping eye. It's worse than a bloodhound, worse than elephant man. I can't look at it. I say, nurse, what was that? She goes, oh, Mr. Gray, that's the drooping eye. I figured as much, but where would it come from? Oh, sometimes it's a result of the operation. What? No one told me that? Oh, Mr. Gray, don't be a silly billy. It's easily fixed with corrective or plastic surgery. And she goes back into the office, and I am sitting there. I go into a bubble. I'm completely freaked out. I picture Jesus, like the old days, coming into the waiting room, you know, and the way he used to come to the multitudes, and pa-pa, and the lame shall walk, and ta-da, the deaf shall hear, and bing, the blind shall see. One touch Jesus, that's what I picture. Or E.T. with his magical sparky finger coming and zoom, sapping my eye, and I'm better because that's what I want. I want magic and miracles. I don't want this medicine, please. And as I'm thinking this, boom, the man with the drooping eye trips over my foot, runs into a woman whose pupils are dilated. She slumps down next to me and says, hello, I have a macular pucker. What do you have? Oh, I hug her. It lasts. Oh my God, it's so good to meet you. What have you been doing? She said, well, I, I've been doing some alternative therapies, but I had to come in here today because today is my preoperative exam. I have to make up my mind by Thursday. What? Oh my God, I wouldn't know what to do if they told me Thursday. What are you going to do? I don't know. I tell you the truth, I helped co-found the emergency room at Roosevelt Hospital. And if you knew what I knew about New York hospitals, I don't think you'd go in one. Oh, I know. That's what all my friends are saying. So I've been trying to do alternatives myself. She said, well, I'm considering, a friend of mine, listen, had a breast tumor plucked from her breast. No cutting or anything like that. She went to the Philippines to a psychic surgeon. What? A Philippine psychic surgeon? Why didn't I think of that? Well, you could still go. I have his name. His name is Trini Boca. He's known, I don't know why, as the Elvis Presley of psychic surgeons. He's in Manila. I'll give you all the information. Just as she's telling me this, the nurse comes out of the office and says... The doctor will see you now, Mr. Gray. And I say, well, 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 I'm not ready to see the doctor. I'm off to the Philippines. And I did it. I flew all the way to the Philippines on my own without taking a drink on the plane once. I arrive, I'm pretty jet lagged. I got directions. I'm supposed to go down to Trini Boca's psychic surgery lab at 9.30 in the morning there in Manila. Used to be the tip-top disco. Now it's been converted into a psychic surgery lab. I arrive at 9.30. I'm the only Westerner there. The rest are Japanese, about 50 Japanese. It's a bus tour. Psychic surgeons of the Philippines that they're on. I think 25 have been operated on. The other 25 are videotaping it, judging from the equipment that they got. And we're all going down this long corridor, uh, pictures of Trini Boca doing psychic surgery on the walls. We get to the end of the car. There's this huge crucifix of Jesus. Who else? And I turn. We go into the operating room, and I cannot believe my eye. There he is, Trini Boca, the Elvis Presley of psychic surgeons, standing in semi-trance under fluorescent light. He's a short man, about 45 years old, Prince Valiant haircut, gold chains around his neck, gold rings on his fingers, a gold watch. He's got a light blue surgical gown on. He's got these Palm Beach white lattice leisure shoes. He's got this kind of Ricky Ricardo, Babalu Vegas energy pouring off of him. And around his waist is a butcher's apron. And he's standing in front of this operating table, it's shrink-wrapped in plastic. Either end of the table, two men with mops. And it begins... Trini rolls up his sleeves, comes out of trance, shows everyone he's got nothing in his hands, folks, puts his hands up, and the first Japanese woman trots up, lies out of the table. Trini takes his hands and drives him into his stomach. Up to his knuckles it goes. Shoot the blood shoots five feet in the air. Spraying the other naked Japanese that are running, screaming like little children, playing under a bloody sprinkler in summertime. Ow, ow, ow. 
She goes around to the back of the line. Up comes the Japanese man. He lies out tree, drives his fingers into his stomach, begins pulling out what looks like a, a meatball the size of a bull's heart. Boom! Throws that in the bucket. That man goes around the back of the line. Up comes the Japanese woman. She lies out. He takes his fingers, droop, drives them into his stomach, pulls out what looks like bloody grapes, begins squeezing them overhead like a kid playing with his own sh- Dropping down over her breast, he's causing it off. She goes around the back of the line. Up comes the Japanese man. He lies out. Trini takes his underwear, pulls it back, revealing his round, firm, full rump, and begins reaching in, reaching up his ass. With gold rings on his fingers, he's reaching up, and he's pulling out what looks like spaghetti with marinara sauce on it. It's supposed to be hemorrhoids. Boom! Throws them in a bucket. That man goes around the back of the line. Up comes a woman. She lies down. He begins to ooze pus out of her neck. Green and yellow pus catching in a cup. She goes around the back of the line. They go through one more time, basically having the same thing done. He finishes, goes over, crosses them, blesses them, goes over to the crucifix, genuflex, wipes some blood off his Palm Beach leisure shoe, lights a cigarette, and leaves. And I... And I went back to my hotel and had my first drink. I had 12 of them, in fact. 12 San Miguel beers. Oh, my God. There was no one to talk to at the hotel. All the Japanese tourists were there. They didn't speak any English. Only people who spoke English were the Philippine waiters. And they're going, hmm, you go to Trini Boca, sir? Hmm? He's a powerful man. You will be healed if you believe. Believe? Is that a prerequisite? I thought he was going to be like Jesus or E.T. One touch and I'd be healed. Oh, God, give me another drink. Uh, you don't believe, sir? No, no. Well, I don't believe. Doubt is my bottom line. The only thing I don't doubt is my doubt. God, give me another beer, please. You do not believe in a creator, sir? No. What creator? I thought I was idiopathic. Give me another beer, please. But you are praying all the time, sir. What do you mean I'm praying? You are saying, oh, God, please, a beer. Oh, God, please, another beer. I went upstairs. I couldn't sleep. All I could see is meatballs flying through the air. At last, I had a little drunken slumber. I woke up with a hangover, ravaged, staring at the ceiling, thinking, AIDS, AIDS, of course. Why does it take so long to get to my bottom line of fear? What American in this day and age wouldn't be blood-phobic with all that blood flying around? i got to go down and talk to Trini Boca, I think. So I go down a half hour early, and I tell him, please, please, Mr. Boca, when you finish operating on the Japanese today, just, you know, wash your hands and rubbing alcohol. Come to my hotel room. Do a private operation with me, please. No. We do not do the private here. Group only. No, no. No private operation. But you have to respect my fear for AIDS. How would I totally relax and lie out on a table and give over to you if, if I have that fear in the way? There's no AIDS here. A, one man came. He had the virus, did not tell me. My hands, they would not enter. They go... <coughs> no AIDS. I wanted to believe him. I wanted to get on that table. I wanted, where would I ever get the courage, I thought. And I thought... I will just get in with the Japanese. When they start moving, they got that kamikaze energy up on that table, no doubt. 
So I get in line with the Japanese that I'd be operated on. They strip down to their underwear. I'm stripping down to my red Fruit of the Loom chalky shorts. And I'm just standing there, my knees shaking, waiting. And, and Trini comes. He rolls up his sleeves. That Japanese woman from the day before comes up, lies out on the table. He takes his hands and drives them into her stomach. The blood shoots five feet into the air. People start going around, getting on. It's my turn. I rush up. I lie out on the table. I'm shaking. I look up and say, Trini, remember, it's just my eye. Just my left eye. Don't be pulling any meatballs out of me, please. He raises his hands, shows me nothing's in them. He goes over, he washes them off, and basically what looks like a bucket of blood. Picks up the cotton gauze, knows this where the debunk is, like Amazing Randy say, that they hide the blood pellets. But as if to show me, prove it to me, opens it, nothing in them, comes at me, two fingers, Oh, all of a sudden, I feel this pressure. His fingers are going in my eye. Blood is coming out. I assume it's my blood. It doesn't feel like my blood, though. I mean, neither does a nosebleed when it comes out of my nose. But it's coming down, tripping over my other eye. Poop. Pulls his finger out. No, stops. I run not to the back of the line, but to the men's room to look in the mirror. Look at my eye, and there's no blood left over. What's going on? And I don't see any better. And now all I can hear is my friends back in Barrington, Rhode Island, saying... Say you went to a guy who started pulling meatballs out of you the size of melons. Would you go to a doctor then? Yes. 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 And then I will make a deadline when I'm going to perform that. That's what the deadline is. I'll say at Vineyard Haven Playhouse, where I did a slippery slope for, for 90 people coming this August. I will make a date to do that. And as I get closer to that, the more my mind begins to formulate how that outline should go. Then I sit down with the outline and I speak it for the first time publicly. It's a slippery slope. Gray reports on his whim to give skiing a try and the unexpected result of his becoming hooked on skis. The combination of snow and mountains has put him in touch with his white Anglo-Saxon Protestant New England roots, opening the door to changes of even greater significance. He becomes enthralled with this sport and envisions himself skiing across America, planning a tour of his performances that will allow him to visit slope after slope from coast to coast. In one particular moment of glory, he considers becoming a ski instructor and retiring the monologues altogether. So all this stuff was heating up, and I was going to go ahead and get married, and I did, and, and I thought the affair would end, and as soon as I got married, it was like a cork going on the bottle, and I was inside, and I went, air, 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 and the affair heated up, the affair heated up, and when Kathy told me she was pregnant, I fell down on the floor and went into a fetal position. And when I got up, I said, get rid of it. Get rid of it. She said, not so fast. It's my body. It's my life too. If I have this child, I will raise it. But I have to think about it. And I got out of there. I went on the road on tour again and sent her money for an abortion and called her and sent her cards saying, get rid of it. And on September 27th, 1992, Kathy gave birth to a son and named him Forrest Dillon Gray. This was extremely traumatic. Oh, Renee cried. I cried. Kathy cried. Forrest cried. We all cried in our own ways, big time. And Renee requested slash forbid me to see that child until there was some reconciliation between us. I, not being able to deal with any of it, went out on tour. 
and got to California and got in a hotel and quite agoraphobic there, really in a panic. I was thinking maybe I should really jump ship and stay in California, move out there, become a vegetarian, cleanse the foul senses within. And while I was there, Renee called and said she had seen Kathy on the street with the baby and a snuggly and had put her in bed. She was so upset I had to come home. I said, you have to give me two days. She said, if you take two days, I won't be here for you. And I did take two days. I took two days, I think, because I couldn't find myself to get out of that room. I was so split. I had the image of myself clearly back there, comforting her, sitting on the bed, continuing the relationship, and I had the other image of me standing next to Kathy, meeting my son for the first time. It took three people to drag me to the airport in San Francisco, bucking and resisting. I can't, I just, it should go back and, oh, I have to make one more phone. Oh, and then a cup of coffee. Oh, 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 oh. This time, the captain of the airplane came out and didn't want to let me on. And my friend tried to convince him of who I was. And he said, I don't care who this man is. Do you know what it costs to land this plane in Kansas? Somehow my friend convinced the captain of the airline that I was rehearsing for a psychotic role in a Martin Scorsese movie, and they let me on. When I got back to New York City, Renee said, that's it. I have to draw a boundary somewhere. You've pushed me too far. I'm moving out with a friend, and we'll see what happens from there. And I didn't throw myself in front of her. I let her walk out of that loft. And I sat there and turned to a stone thing. I was like a statue of myself. I felt nothing. And I took a bottle of vodka and took a couple of big belts and felt my breath again. And I thought all my life, all the relationship with Renee, she had been the heart of the relationship. I was slow to feel, she felt. She filled the room with her glorious heart. I was slow to make a decision on what to do next. She had a five-year plan. Now I was empty and alone like a stone man. And I thought, what do you want to do just now, Spaulding? And it occurred to me I would like to see my son. He was born eight months ago. I hadn't seen him. I wanted to go down. I called Kathy. I went down. She took him out of the crib. He went right for her breast, and I knew there was no need for a blood test. I saw my father's head, the back of my father's head, in my son's head. I saw my brother's Rocky's eyes. I saw a distant mirror. I saw a little lust flower. I saw a full-blown human being. I saw a glorious accident. And I experienced a perfect paradox. I thought, now I can die, and I must stay alive to help this little guy through. Kathy takes him and puts him in my arms and says, You take him, go off with him, bond with him. You haven't seen him in, really since he was born. You guys go off together. Go to your summer house up in Brewster. What? She's trusting me with this infant. And I do it. I'm on the train going up to Brewster North. I have no idea whether this child looks good or bad. All the people are coming up to me and saying, mm, Wow, what a lovely granddaughter you have. I get up there to the summer house, put him down on the floor, let him do his thing. I don't know what to do with him. Rug rat that he is. Let him crawl around. I'm going to do my thing. Make my bloody merry and get out the salmon and peas, begin to prepare dinner. And at some point I have to change Forrest's diaper. I put everything aside and I bend over and look into his eyes. And I am lost. Coming back at me is not even a human expression. It is mere being pure consciousness, 
these non-agenda eyes, the not judging, not needing, not hurting, not tempting, not touching, not old, not new, because not in time, just eyes. I pull back and blink. I am so bowled over by this, and I take him in my arms, and we are not separated for five hours. In my lap, he's pulling green peas out of my mouth and feeding himself, and the image of a robin mother bird occurs to me. What if I spit them in his mouth? And I take his little head and go to spit them in his mouth, and he gives me a straight arm. Pow! And I go, whoa. Boundaries at eight months. Where would he get those? I could learn something from this little guy. I would have thrown my head back and gone, feed me, feed me. And I put on Beethoven, and we went out and spun in the yard. Around and around, his little body, the centrifugal force taking him out, and all of a sudden something reversed it, and he came in, and I felt his chest pressed up against mine. And I felt our hearts click up. And I thought, oh, yes, till death do us part. My power and strength is in sitting in front of an audience and slowly developing the narrative with them until they're completely in it and we enter into the story together. And they're in that story and we go into a, another space, another kind of frozen time. And that's part of why I don't move on stage. I found the sitting behind the desk centers the narrative. I'm very expressive with my hands and face and very words. But if I don't move around, see, moving around creates time. Because I'm in one place and then I'm in another. That's a measurement of time. But when I'm just sitting still, the audience really gets into the story with me. And then we, we have a kind of real focus. Morning, noon, and night covers the events of one day in the life of Gray and his family, Kathy, Marissa, Forrest, and Theo, living in a small town in eastern Long Island, chronicling his experience as a stay-at-home dad. And when she moved to New York City with her daughter Marissa, and Marissa was three, I, I continued to meet her there. And I first met Marissa at a party in downtown New York City, uh, and Marissa had a sense that Spalding Gray, the name Spalding Gray existed because I'd called the loft a lot to talk with Kathy. And, but she could never get her imagination around Spalding Gray, so she referred to me as Splendid Cafe. <laughs> you know, which I thought was a great stage name if I ever needed one. I, I think we're going to get away with this one story about the family. I wouldn't want to turn into Ozzy and Harriet and make an ongoing soap opera because the children would then be minor heroes before they were our, our greater um, people. We move into the house and new life comes. Kathy gets pregnant. How did this happen? <laughs> I don't think I want this child. I'm content now with our new home and the family configuration as it is, I told my therapist. <laughs> Kathy, Kathy, sure it's going to be a girl. She's convinced me it's going to be a girl. We're going to name her... Eliza Ann Gray, 11 hours into labor here. The storm is still raging. It's the next day, and Kathy can only find one comfortable position. She's on all fours like a wild animal. The nurses are not approving. I know it's not Northern California. I'm trying to get the window, hermetically sealed window, open to get a little air in there. Marissa's dozing in the corner with her little camera, and all of a sudden, it starts to come. And I just have time to get on my scrubs and roll Kathy over. I'm helping. I'm pushing one knee back. The other the nurse has the other knee, and I look down, and oh my God, it looks like she's giving birth to a dead beaver. 
What is that hairy blue football and how is it gonna fit through that pow? And it's out and I go, whoa, look at the on that girl. And I lean over and kiss Kathy and cry and bend down and cut the umbilical cord and the crimson blood flies. And I look down at this glorious accident, Theo. We just grabbed that name out of the air in case it was a boy, Theo, short for nothing. <laughs> short for the study of God. Theo Spalding Gray. And back at me is coming this totally perplexed face with the big why, why this? Why something and not nothing? And I totally identify with it. And I know that he's not mirroring me. He hasn't been in the world long enough to pick up on my face. He's brought this in with him. And I think, oh, little one, you may have already spent the best days of your life <laughs> in there. I think of poetic journalism as uh, telling a relatively true story, but after you've digested it, filtered it through your own imagination, and then tell it with poetry, with flavor, with innuendo, with hyperbole, uh, and um, so that it, it, it starts as a true story, but it's, it's, it, it's filtered through my, my imagination. Mm -hmm. So at its best, it comes out as a form of poetry. Forrest came to me very early on with questions about death. He wasn't even four. And I just was very honest with him. I said, you know, everyone that comes in has to go out. That's just the whole rule of it. That's how it goes. It, and it's probably, in, in a way, comforting. It's the only thing we really know. And the funny thing, Forrest, about death is, or not funny, really, because I don't think there's anything funny about that, but the odd thing is, is that, you know, everyone knows they're going to die, but no one really believes it. The other thing about the monologue is I can play irony and can play many different things with my hands and voice at the same time I'm doing the narrative. And you can't do that in the printed. You know, you're absent for the printed. You're present. I like the present. I think the form that I'm doing is very unique because it's very, we're living in a world of virtual reality. But mainly what we experience is through television or the image or it's brought to us through film. And uh, people aren't used to live performer, and I think that's a unique and wonderful experience as they're so used to seeing a film. The other thing is that they get into creating their own images in their head, because they have to, because I'm telling the story, and it's not just my image they're seeing, they're having their own personal interaction. <clears throat> and here we are, you know, talking like old days, like radio. See, I grew up with radio. We didn't have a television in our home till I was 11 years old. So I grew up with imagining Ozzie and Harriet's house, say. My, one of my favorite shows. I had it all in my mind. Then when television came, they put Ozzy and Harriet on TV, and you have the literalization of the image. You have the TV production's house. So I find that uh, the spoken word stimulates the imagination. And everything is going fine. A 2010 documentary film directed by Steven Soderbergh about the life of Spalding Gray. It premiered on January 23, 2010 at the Slamdance Film Festival and was screened at the 2010 South by Southwest Film Festival and the 2010 Maryland Film Festival. Soderbergh decided against recording narration in new interviews. The film instead consists entirely of archival footage, principally numerous excerpts from monologues by and interviews with Gray, spanning some 20 years as well as home movies of Gray as an infant. Music for the film was composed by Gray's son, Forrest.
My mother committed suicide. Shortly after she committed suicide, the woman down the road, her husband drank himself to death. So my father and this woman got together to try to make a, you know, a good marriage and forget about the pain and move into a perfect house. So they moved into this kind of like a ranch house that was like a very modern, fully equipped motel. Well, you pull in the asphalt driveway, on the right is a huge tennis court. You go in, you pull in, you push a button in the car. One of the three cars, the three-car garage door goes up. Three cars are in the garage. You go around to the front door, ring the doorbell. It plays 40 different tunes. My father's always adjusting them every day. That particular day was the William Tell Overture. Or next day it would be the whole world is waiting for the sunrise with a polka beat. Or it might be Jingle Bell Rock according to the seasons, and you go in, and there's a whole weather station there on your left with the barometric pressure and the wind velocity and the temperature, and it's wall-to-wall carpeting and Muzak playing in all the rooms, and in their, in their bedroom between the, uh, between the twin beds there's a little box that makes white sound. You can turn it to uh, static, you can turn it to uh, water, you can turn it to wind. My father likes to sleep with the static, said he couldn't get to sleep without it. Down in the basement, down in the basement, and everything is going fine, and down in the basement there are freezers, two freezers filled all the way up to the top with meat. Up in the attic there are rows and rows of bourbon, rows and rows of scotch, rows and rows of gin, just like a liquor warehouse, there's an automatic generator that goes on automatic pilot when the lights go out and everything is going fine and everything going fine and the cocktail hour begins about five o'clock. We usually start in front of the TV with Zoom. And after Zoom, <laughs> six o'clock news, the 6.30 news, the seven o'clock news, and we're eating somewhere around the odd couple. Now, I never know whether I'm talking to my father, my stepmother, or the odd couple. It all kinds of blends in. <laughs> And everything is going fine. He said, this particular day, it's summer and we're eating outside. And the only problem is flies. There's a fly. Look out, a fly. Close the door. Get out the bomber. My father got out this big fogger and set it off by the picnic table out back. And my stepmother, who collects antiques, got out the antique fly gun. And you pull it back like this and you line it up a certain distance from the fly. And if you're, if you're all right, the thing goes, Foom. you know. And everything is going fine, and everything is going fine, except someone stole his flagpole twice with the flag on it, so he's had to cement this one in, and everything is going fine, except the swimming pool has cracks in it, it's leaking, and the astroturf is shrinking. <laughs> and everything is going fine, everything is going fine, except for the squirrels, the gypsy moths, and a pig farmer named Rocky. <laughs> now, these pigs, this is a good ways away, but if the wind is wrong, you smell the garbage when you're in the swimming pool. And this is driving them nuts because it's an imperfection, you see, it's an imperfection. So what they found out was, there was they, they, they investigated, there's a town ordinance, you know, that you can't have pigs next to private property, but there's a good chunk of very expensive property between their property and Rocky the pig farmer. And I want to tell you, there's another problem too, because my father's name is Rocky. <laughs> so there's a very big expensive piece of property between there and there, so they go down and they buy it. And the next day they take Rocky to court, the pig farmer, and they say, you can't have pigs next to our property. He says, you don't own that property. And he says, we bought it this morning, my friend. In addition to his monologues, Spalding had parts in the films The Killing Fields, True Stories, Beaches, Stars and Bars, Clara's Heart, Straight Talk, King of the Hill, Twenty Bucks, The Paper, Diabolique, How High, and Kate and Leopold, among others. He also appeared in the television shows Saturday Night Live, Spencer for Hire, The Nanny, and Will and Grace. Spalding Gray has authored the books Swimming to Cambodia, The Nothing Issue, Sex and Death to the Age 14, In Search of the Monkey Girl, High and Low, Homespun, Monster in a Box, Impossible Vacation, Grey's Anatomy, First Words, It's a Slippery Slope, Morning, Noon, and Night, Life Interrupted the Unfinished Monologue, and the Journals of Spalding Grey. And in my case, the audience is there as a collective. 
So they're doing it together. So I don't ever felt it as a monologue or, or, or a solo. I feel like I'm dancing with the audience and I'm riding their wave of energy and laughter. I'm getting through these shows here in LA for 1400 seat house on their energy. They're uplifting me. I, you know, I, 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 if I was just in a room writing, I wouldn't be working off their energy. Spalding Gray is best known for works that delve deeply and comically into the dark reaches of his own anxious mind. I always found his insights delightfully entertaining and endearing. The sad facts of his death do not romanticize or fix his legend, but they also do not tarnish his wonderful work. I was obsessed with him from the first day and will continue to be for the rest of my life. Thank you for listening to Eclectic Obsessions. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe on iTunes. Leave me a review. All five-star reviews will be read on the show. You can follow the show on Facebook at Eclectic Obsessions, on Twitter at Eclectic Obsess One, on Instagram at Eclectic Obsessions Podcast, and on YouTube at Eclectic Obsessions. I'd love to hear what you think. Feel free to email the show at ecobpod at gmail.com. We'll be back in one month's time with a new eclectic obsession.